Well, good evening, everyone. It's really good to see you tonight. I'm glad some of you came back after last uh, after last week. <clears throat> so uh, I guess you're, uh, what's that, gluttons for punishment or something like that. I forgot last week to hand out the, uh, the handout that I had made on Christian's view of final punishment. But let me just refresh our memory. You have it there in front of you. But there are three views that evangelical Christians hold to. One of them is with regard to hell. Uh, one of them is uh, Christian universalism. The other one, conditionalism, and the third one, traditionalism. And again, just to refresh our memories, Christian universalism is the idea that hell is remedial, that the purpose of hell is to lead everyone to repentance, that God might reconcile all men to himself, and that in the end, uh, he will bring all things unto Christ and all men will be redeemed. And so hell exists to help people come to repentance. And then there's uh, traditionalism. I'm going to jump to that one next. Traditionalism is just by by definition what its title insinuates, the traditional view of hell. And the church has pretty much held this view since the uh, 5th century, maybe even earlier than that. They've held this this view, and that is that hell consists of eternal conscious torment uh, up until uh, the middle of last century, most Traditionalists would have said that hell is literally a place of fire where resurrected men with immortal lives would be burned over and over and over again for all eternity but never dying. And, uh, and then the third view is conditionalism, which is the, the view that we talked about last week. And conditionalism is the view that the Bible teaches that hell is not remedial, and neither is hell eternal conscious torment, but rather that the nature of hell is death, that God is going to uh, kill, die, uh, kill, destroy, uh, do away with, uh, really just die, men will die in their sins. Now, I gave you uh, a positive case for uh, conditional immortality last week. And again, you know, the penalty of sin and conditional immortality, and I know I just said this, would be death, extinction, insensate, eradication of your lives. Your body and your conscious life will die in hell, and you will be no more. And I gave you a four-point, if you would, a positive case from the Bible for conditionalism. And those four points were the Bible's vision of eternity and just stating it very succinctly, that the Bible paints this picture of the future where all evil will be done away with. There will be no more evil, and all things will be brought under Christ. And so we said that that, what that means is that for that to happen, either all men must be redeemed at the end, or evil must not exist anymore because God has destroyed it, God has done away with it, and is no more as opposed to this dualism in eternity where there's heaven and, and, and existence in bliss with God, and then there's this other place over here where people are always, where evil people are continuing to sin and evil exists. So we said that the vision that the Bible paints of eternity is one where evil is done away with. The second was that the Bible's promise of immortality, and again, very succinctly we said that the Bible, and you can go back and listen to part one of this, but the Bible very clearly says that immortality is a gift from God, and it's given only to those who are righteous by faith. And so, and this is where the title conditional 
conditional immortality comes from or conditionalism comes from because we believe that immortality is conditioned on faith in Christ, not something that men have inherently uh, by their creation. The third positive case or the first positive, the, the third point in this positive case for conditionalism would be the language of destruction and death. And then the final, of course, was the Bible's declaration of atonement. And we said that the atoning work of Jesus was his death on the cross, uh, not his torment. And again, that's not to say that torture or, or a painful, tormenting death won't be associated with the death of the wicked, but we are saying that the penalty of sin is death, and that is what the Bible continually points to when it points to the atoning work of Christ, that Jesus died for us so that we won't have to die. So tonight, what we want to do is we want to talk through the Bible verses, okay? And we're going to look at the three, the big three that traditionalists point to that say that this, this makes the case a closed deal. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's open and shut that traditionalism is true, that God's going to torment people forever in hell. And we're going to look at the three verses that they would point to, but we're going to look to many other verses as well. But before we do that, I'd like to... Uh, I'd like to spend some time in just two preliminary biblical exegetical exercises, I think, that help us with understanding what the Bible says. And the first of these exercises is to talk about the words used in conjunction with final punishment from the Bible. And there are four of them that I'm going to uh, allude to, and one of them actually has two words, but I'm going to count it as one. And we're going to begin there. So the first word is sheol. And, and the, that's in the Hebrew, and the Greek word is Hades. But both of these words, one of them translates the other. And so what Sheol and Hades refer to is the place of the dead. Most, most often translated in your Bible as the grave or the pit. And unfortunately, King James translates Sheol or uh, Hades as hell some 31 times, but that's really a mistranslation. Most modern translations today reserve the word hell for the word Gehenna. We'll talk about it next. But Sheol and Hades is the place where it, it is referred to as the place of the dead, where the dead are when they are dead. And again, it's defined quite often, most often in your Bibles as simply the grave or the pit. The second word is the word hell which translates the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna is used 11 times in your New Testament. Ten of them are used by the Lord Jesus. Now the word Gehenna in its Hebrew origin means the Valley of Hinnom. And so Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom. Now from history, we know that the Valley of Hinnom was a place near Jerusalem where Ahaz introduced the worship of Baal and Moloch. And Ahaz actually sacrificed his own son to one of those fiery gods in 2 Chronicles 28, verses 1 through 4. And many Jews under the ungodly king Manasseh, they, they offered their children also as burnt offerings uh, in this idolatrous worship. That would be Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31. Now this, this cruel form of pagan worship was abolished later by Josiah, and the Valley of Hinnon, which used to be the place where they sacrificed their children, became a receptacle for dead carcasses, the bodies of criminals and animals. It was just known for a place where maggots were always eating corpses. Uh, there was a perpetual fire set, uh, you know, uh, they tried to keep a perpetual fire going there to destroy the putrefying 
stuff that would be cast into the valley of Hinnon. And so when Jesus came along, when Jesus was born and lived in Palestine uh, or in Jerusalem, out in, in that area, whatever, Gehenna was still in existence. And uh, he is going to reference the valley of Gehenna twice or, or several times, actually. And in, that, in those references, he's going to talk about the worms uh, that don't die and the fire that is not quenched. And we'll look at that a little bit later on in our study. The third word is the word Tartarus, and the word Tartarus appears only one time in our Greek New Testaments. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And we find it where it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and then the verse goes on. So again, you know, so many of our New Testament translations translate that word hell but they're translating hell and Hades and Sheol and Gehenna all as the same word, and uh, and they and they don't all necessarily refer to the same thing. And so Tartarus in Greek mythology was a place where the the most heinous criminals and and the the greatest criminals against the Greek gods would be cast. It was a place that was under Hades. It was a place lower than Hades where people were consigned. And uh, so Peter uses this word Tartarus to refer to the place where angels who rebelled against God are being kept. And I think he used it differently than, uh, than he used the word Hades or Sheol, because those words refer to the place of the dead, again, often translated the grave. Tartarus was a place where spirits were, uh, were kept. Uh, we also find this, we don't find a reference to Tartarus, but we do find a reference to angels that rebelled against God and they abandoned their proper place. And in Jude chapter 6, it says, These he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for the, the day of judgment on the great day. So evidently, evidently from Scripture that there are spirit beings that are not creatures like us, human creatures or physical creatures that are being kept for the day of judgment. And the last term that's used with final judgment in our Bibles would be the lake of fire. And we find the lake of fire referenced in in the last book of the Bible in Revelation. We find it in Revelation chapter 20. And if I begin reading in verse 12, it says, "And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, uh, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire." And if anyone does not, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the question then becomes from the book of Revelation, you know, what is the lake of fire? And is the lake of fire a literal lake of fire, or is it a symbol for something else? Again, I said this earlier, just a little while ago, actually, that traditionalists up until the last, the middle of last century, they uniformly believed that all of this was literal and that the, the lake of fire was literal. And they said that the Valley of Gehenna, where they were burning dead carcasses, was symbolic of this lake of fire that burned eternally uh, immortal people who were never dying. 
Now today, many people see the lake of fire, many traditionalists who believe in eternal conscious torment see the lake of fire not as literal fire, but as a metaphor for torment. And uh, what I'd like to at least ask you to consider, as, as we're just talking about these terms, however, is, is that the reference to the lake of fire is found in an apocalyptic book, which is filled with images that are not literal. Okay, Apocalyptic literature is a type of Jewish and early Christian literature, most, most of it stemming from the years 200 B.C., maybe to around the year 100 A.D., which contains all kinds of visions and dreams which are meant to convey truth through those visions, through those pictures, through those dreams. And, uh, and so really, the, the book of Revelation, being apocalyptic, so many of the visions are not literal. For instance, I mean, earlier in the book of Revelation, we have a lady who's standing on the sun who gives birth, and her son uh, is, is, goes to earth. And, and so none of us believe that those visions are literal. We believe those visions represent truth. And so I believe the lake of fire, we talked about this last week. Again, feel free to go back and listen to part one if you haven't listened to it. But, you know, the truth is the lake of fire, John actually tells us in two different places what the lake of fire actually represents. And he says the lake of fire represents the second death. So those are those are the four terms that we'll find as we go through the study of New Testament terminology especially, or these New Testament verses in just a bit, we'll see these, these words being used quite often. Now, I said there was two exegetical exercises that I wanted to do. One of them was that, to go through the words used. But the second thing I'd like to do is, I'd, before we actually look at New Testament texts themselves, and we're all going to look at some texts with this, but what I'd like to do is go back to the Old Testament, before we go to the New Testament, and, and let's ask ourselves, what is the fate of the lost in the Old Testament. Now, if you ask a traditionalist about hell in the Old Testament, they will tell you that the Old Testament is silent on hell. It doesn't talk about hell. And they usually point to progressive revelation. And they say, okay, you know, back then God just hadn't revealed anything about hell yet, but we come to the New Testament and reveals to us, you know, what hell will be like. Well, actually, I really think and I got this one from Edward Fudge, I believe they're actually asking the wrong question. The question you ought to ask as you go to the Old Testament, what does the Old Testament say is the fate of the lost? What, what is the fate of those who don't turn in faith to God, don't, don't trust God, or not made righteous by faith? What is the fate of the wicked? That's the kind of question we ought to ask of the Old Testament. And if you ask that question, there are um, there's lots of uh, there's lots of evidence from the Old Testament as to what happens to the uh, the unrepentant in the Old Testament. So to do this, I'm, I'm going to divide the Old Testament into its three parts: the Law, the Wisdom Books, and the Prophets. And I'm just going to touch on a few things. And actually, this first part, I feel like I'm being a little bit disingenuous because I'm going to look at the Law and I'm going to look at two stories about God treating the wicked, how he treats them in the wicked, but uh, how he treats the wicked in the Old Testament. But one of the things I want you to notice, what we're going to do is we're actually going to jump to the New Testament and see some of the apostles actually interpreting or using those stories with regard to the fate of the lost at the end of all times. So let's start with the books of the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. And in Genesis, we're going to look at two stories, the story of the flood and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's start with the story of the flood. 
In Genesis chapter 7, verse 21, we read, All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land, all in, those, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things to birds in the sky, they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. So according to Genesis chapter 7, you know, God killed or he destroyed the earth. But really, when it talks about him destroying the earth, really what he destroyed was all the living creatures that breathed air like we do and that, that needed oxygen. I mean, he killed them all by drowning them. Okay. Now, Peter is going to use this story and he's going to use it and apply it to the fate of the lost at the end. Listen, this is Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5. And Peter says, For when they maintain this, talking about people who scoff at us at the Lord's return, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, that's God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So Peter points to the, the, to the final destruction of, of the earth. And, and again, if we're going to say God destroyed the earth with a flood, like Peter does, and he's going to destroy it by fire, he's, he's, Peter's basically saying the flood was an illustration of what God's going to do to the destruction of godly men. He said he's going to do it with fire, not with water. And what did he do to men in the Old Testament? He killed them. I mean, he destroyed them. They died. And, and so what's God going to do with fire? He's going to destroy ungodly men. He's, he's going to bring about their death. Now, the second story would be the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that one well as well, where God rains down fire, an eternal fire from himself. And he rains this fire down from heaven, and he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. So listen to Genesis 19, 24, and 25. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now again, Peter's going to use this story from the law and uh, this, this story of real life happenings. And he says, how God destroyed them is an example of what God's going to do to the wicked at the end of all time. And so he says in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6, he says, and if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction. Now, some of your translations, if you're reading the ESV, that seems to be the most popular this day, these days. It says, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to extinction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So Peter says what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah is an example to all the ungodly men that that's what he's going to do to them uh, at some time in the future. Now we all know that ungodly men don't all burn with fire from Sodom, you know, from heaven, destroying them like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. So what does Peter mean? Obviously he means that the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah is an illustration of what God is going to do to the wicked one day, burning them to ashes, destroying them. 
you know, Jude would uh, would use this same story and, and seems to agree with Peter. He says in verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So, I mean, they the eternal fire is the fire from God, okay? And this eternal fire from God destroyed them. And Jude says, just like Peter, that that is an example of what God is going to do to the wicked. He is going to destroy them, burn them up, so that all that's left is ashes. Now, um, those are two stories, and, and I'm sure there's probably other stuff in the law, uh, but I just don't have time to cover it. I'm, I'm, I imagine there's some other verses in the law that would also point to this idea that God is going to destroy the, the wicked. But let's move on, and let's look at the wisdom books of the Bible. Those would be the Psalms and uh, and the Proverbs, but I'm, I'm basically going to stay with the Psalms, and I owe a lot of this to, to Edward Fudge. But Edward Fudge, looking at the, the Psalms, let's, let's start with Psalm 37. In verse 1, listen to what Psalm 37 verse 1 says about the fate of the lost. He says, the fate of the rebellious, those who don't put their trust in God. He says in verse 1, do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Let's drop down to verse 9, same psalm. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he'll be no more. Or he'll not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 37. He says, you know, the wicked are going to just, they're going to be no more. What does he say here? He says, uh, you'll look for them. You're not going to find them anymore. They're going to be like the grass that fades away. He says, but the humble, they get to inherit the land. They're going to have the land, the world and, uh, and they will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And so you look around and you say, wow, when does that happen? When does that come about? And the truth is, it doesn't often come about in this life. And so what is, so, so what is he talking about? Well, look at verse 34, same psalm. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land when the wicked are cut off and you will see it. So according to verse 34, we're actually going to see the destruction of the wicked. And it's then that we'll inherit the land. What is Psalm 30, uh, 37 pointing to? It's pointing to the end of all things, God's judgment, where the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will inherit the land. Well, let's go on. There's more. Here's what God says of the wicked. He says in Psalm 2, 9, he's going to break them to pieces. Psalm 30, 139, verse 19, he's going to slay them. In 94, 93, he's going to cut them up. In uh, 69, 28, he's going to blot them out of the book of the living. In 11, 6, he's going to rain fire and brimstone on them. He says that the wicked are going to be like, uh, and these are, again, all the Psalms, they're going to be like chaff blown away, Psalm 1, 4. They're going to be snails that melt, 58, 8. They're going to be grass that is cut down, 37.2. They're going to be wax that melts, 68.2. They're going to be clay pots that are broken, Psalm 2.9. Water that flows away, 58.7. Smoke that vanishes, 68.2. Stubble before the wind, 83.13. And there are over, I understand there are over 70 metaphors and similes that speak similarly that the wicked will just be done away with, destroyed. Now, it's not necessary that these 
these similes and metaphors all be literal descriptions of what happens to the wicked. However, it, it seems to me that these similes and metaphors must correspond to the reality that is. In other words, those metaphors need to correspond to the idea of what is true. What I don't believe, and this is, this is where the, the picture in the Old Testament is so contrary to eternal conscious torment of immortal beings that never die, because the, the picture they paint is exactly opposite of the reality that is, if indeed hell is eternal conscious torment where God is torturing men and women forever and ever and ever. If the picture says the wicked will be no more and the wicked actually last forever and ever, that's exactly the opposite picture. Or if the picture says that the wicked are burned up like straw and yet the wicked are never burned up like straw, that's the opposite picture. Now, all of these Old Testament pictures, I tell you what they do, they create a consistent impression. And, and let me just ask you, I mean, just think about it in your mind's eye for just a moment. Is the picture that these verses are painting, is it one that you get the impression that people will be restored and then tormented? Or is the impression that you get that these people will die, that they will be no more, that they will be destroyed? And I think if you're honest, you're going you're gonna to say the picture is that they will actually be destroyed and be no more. Now, one more aspect of Old Testament uh, biblical uh, exegesis, if you would, with regard to what the prophets say, I mean, what the Old Testament says. We, we looked at the, the books of the law. We looked at the books of the wisdom. Let me talk about the books, uh, you know, the prophetic books, and just a couple of passages from the prophetic books. One of my favorites is Malachi chapter 4. Uh, the first several verses. Here's what Malachi says. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord. And I, I tell you what, I, it just seems to me Malachi is so clear that on the day of God's judgment, the evildoers will be absolutely destroyed by fire. God's going to leave them neither root nor branch. They will be absolutely nothing but ashes. They will die and be destroyed. We get to Isaiah chapter 66, beginning with verse 22. Isaiah writes, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make before me endure, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men whom have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Now, like all the other Old Testament literature that we've been looking at, it paints this picture of the enemies of God being destroyed, dying. The picture is not that God is tormenting men and women. The, the, the picture is that the remains of God's enemies lie as corpses, and they're being eaten by maggots, and they're being burned by a fire that will not be quenched. They are, they are corpses. They are dead. All right, with those two 
uh, exegetical exercises under our belt, the, the words that are used and in the, what the Old Testament says about the fate of the lost, let's now turn our attention to the New Testament verses and, and the ones that those who hold to the traditional view of hell, eternal conscious torment, we're going to look at the top three verses and why they say these are definitive in giving us a picture of eternal conscious torment. All right, the first passage would be Matthew 25, verse 31 through verse 46. And this is a very familiar passage. It's where Jesus compares the sheep and the goats, and the goats he sends to the left and to the right, or, or in the sheep. I can't remember which way they go. But he separates them from the, the goats from the sheep. Let me just read part of it. And then he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister you to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then verse 46 is the clincher. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the traditionalist points to the fact that eternal punishment is contrasted with eternal life. And they say, look, you cannot, you cannot say that the, the righteous have eternal life, but that the wicked are only going to be punished temporarily, you know, because the same word Ionios for eternal is used in both cases. So you cannot say eternal punishment ends uh, with death. And so it's, it's just, you know, it's just a temporary punishment. You cannot say that. And, and I absolutely, I want you to know, I absolutely agree with them. I agree that because Jesus is contrasting eternal punishment with eternal life, the word eternal there means exactly the same in both cases, that, that one group is going to be punished eternally and one group is going to receive life eternally. But, but now let's talk about the term eternal punishment, because eternal punishment does not have to mean eternal punishing. And this is where the conditionalists and the traditionalists are going to disagree. The traditionalist says, well, that means God must be eternally punishing someone. And uh, we say, I say this evening, that eternal punishment does not mean eternal punishing. It means just what it says. It is a noun of action. It means an eternal punishment. It is a punishment that lasts forever. Now, Nouns of action in the English and in the Greek are just just what it seems like they are, okay? Um, this is not a complex linguistic gymnastic thing that we've got to do in order to understand Jesus' words. This is a basic rule of language that, that even small children can understand and practice as they begin to learn to talk. For example, let's take the word translation. Now, the word translation may refer to the act of translating, okay? For instance, the translation of the book took 10 years. Well, translation in that context means the act of translating. But we could also use the word translation to be the result of the translating, all right? The translation has been published recently. So you're not talking about the act of translating. You're talking about the product of the translation, okay, that it was published recently. Punishment 
is just like that. It's a noun of action. And it can be understood as a completed act. And I very, I very clearly think this passage teaches it that way. That punishment is the result, it is the final result, the eternal result of God punishing those who uh, by who, those who reject the Lord and uh, and do not come to Him in faith, and we, we have these kind of words in our Bible all over. For instance, we have eternal judgment in Hebrews six two, where eternal judgment doesn't mean that God's going to be eternally judging day after day after day. It means that the judgment that He did has eternal consequences. Eternal sin, Mark 3.29, talking about how the person who does blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is committing an eternal sin. Well, it doesn't mean that he's sinning time after time after time. It means that that sin has eternal ramifications. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 speaks of eternal redemption. Again, we don't believe that Jesus is redeeming and redeeming and redeeming. He redeemed us according to Ephesians 1, 7 through his blood. And we recognize that that was a one-time thing that Jesus did, but it can carry on with eternal ramifications for us. All right? Not just, you know, we don't have to, he doesn't have to be redeeming us day after day after day. Hebrews 5, 9, we have eternal salvation. Hebrews 9, 15, eternal inheritance. So when we go back to this verse where Jesus says in verse 46, and those who will go away into eternal punishment, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life, well, both of those things are, the eternal life and the punishment are nouns of action. And so what we're looking at is we're looking at the result of what God did when he punished, and it's eternal. And if you are following all of this, then conditional, you know, annihilation, that's, if you remember from this first session, another way of talking about conditionalism is annihilationism, or the death, the, the, a person losing their life completely and forever, we would say that the punishment is eternal. I mean, you lose your life forever. You are not coming back from it. Now listen to this. Maybe this will help. You know, when you die at some point in your life now, as you know it, when you die, you actually are coming back from that death. It is not eternal. God is going to raise you from the dead, whether you are a righteous person or an unrighteous person, whether you are a person who's put their faith in God or somebody who's rejected God. According to the Bible, your death is not final. You will rise again, and God will give you your life back, and you will stand before him in judgment. Some people say, well, why is God going to do that? I, I think God's going to do that so that the righteousness of God's justice and the righteousness of God's judgment will be seen by everyone. But everyone gets raised back to life. But those who are have rejected the Lord will be sentenced to the lake of fire, which John says is the second death. And as a conditionalist, I believe that is an eternal death. That is a death you're not coming back from. That's a death God's not going to raise you back to life from. You will be gone. So that's the first passage. The second passage that traditionalists point to as just being, well, you know, you, you just this one can't be can't be understood any other way would be Mark chapter nine, verse forty-two through verse fifty. Now, Mark forty-two, let me read it to you. Mark nine, you'll be familiar as you listen. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. By the way, let me just stop here and say, every time I'm saying hell, what Jesus literally said was the valley of Hinnon. So he said, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the valley of Hinnon, where, where, the worm, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Now, there's two issues that traditionalists appeal to in this text that make it seem that from their perspective, you know, you, this is irrefutable. And one of them is the unquenchable fire. And we find unquenchable fire even separated from the, the references to the Valley of Hinnon. Let me, let me see if I can go back and find it. It's actually in, uh, well, actually it's not, excuse me, it's not disassociated from the Valley of Hinnon. It's verse 43. It is better for you to enter into life crippled than with two hands go into the Valley of Hinnon to the unquenchable, to the unquenchable fire. And so the traditionalist says, you see, it says unquenchable fire, and that means fire that will never go out. But that, beloved, is not what the word unquenchable means. It's not even how it's used throughout the Old Testament. The word unquenchable doesn't mean that it won't go out. The word unquenchable means it cannot be put out until it is done, it's burned, all there is to burn. Okay, so we find that in Isaiah 34, verse 5 and verses 8 through 10. And so here's Isaiah, he's writing, says, for my, speaking for God, for my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it will descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. So God says he's going to destroy the people of Eden. Edom. In verse 8, it says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch. Now, this is talking about Edom. Its streams will be turned into pitch, and its loose, loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch, and it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. Now, you know, two things. We'll come back to the smoke going up forever and ever, but, but we also talk about it will not be quenched night or day. Edom is not burning anymore, everyone. No one believes that Edom is still burning. And so the idiom of unquenchable fire, you know, or it's not even an idiom, the word unquenchable fire does not mean that it's, it's always going to burn, that it cannot go out. What it means is it will not go out until it's accomplished everything. So it's burned up everything there is to burn up. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, something really similar. This is talking about Jerusalem. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it, is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Now, God is talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem when Babylon's going to come down there and burn it to the ground, burn the temple, destroy everything, and basically says it will burn and not be quenched. Jerusalem is not still burning. What God was saying was that it will not be quenched until he's burned up what he wanted to burn up. 
And still one more example, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 45. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Teman and speak out against the south and prophesy against the forests of the Negev and say to the forests of the Negev, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to kindle a fire in you and it will consume every green tree in you as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched and the whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. All flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. And so again, a God is, you know, the, the valley of, or, or the forest of Timon, it's not still burning all these centuries later. What, what God said was, it won't be quenched. I'm going to burn it up. It's going to be destroyed. Unquenchable fire does not mean fire that will never go out. Unquenchable fire means that fire won't go, the fire won't go out until it is consumed, destroyed, burned up everything that serves as its fuel. Now let's go back to that text from uh, that we read that Jesus, where he quotes where the worm, their worm, I keep saying there, I want you to hear that, there, like T-H-E-I-R, their worm does not die and uh, the fire is not quenched. And he uses that phrase uh, in this passage and others. And and this passage here, you may not know this. Well, before we actually look at where the passage comes from, let me just ask you a question. When Jesus says, their worm, whose worm is he talking about? All right. And, uh, and, and when he says, their, their worm won't die, I want you to realize that he's not talking that the worm won't ever die. He just says the worm won't die. And the implication is kind of like quench. Their worm won't die until you know, this worm is, is eating everything there is to eat. And where is this person that, that Jesus says their worm won't die and the fire won't be quenched? Where is that person? Well, they are cast into the valley of Henan. This is a dead person that Jesus is referencing. And so it's obvious the worm then is a maggot. But here's what you may not know and may not realize. Jesus is actually quoting an Old Testament passage. And he's actually quoting Isaiah 66, which I read to you earlier. Let's read it again. Isaiah 66, beginning with verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your and your name will endure. Man, I love this. I mean, I'm so excited about what I just read. Isaiah, God says, I'm going to make this new heaven and this new earth, and it's going to endure. It'll never it's going to endure forever, and so will you. He's talking to his righteous men and women, those who love him, those who by faith have trusted him. He said, you, just like this new heavens and new earth that I'm creating, it's going to endure forever. You're going to endure forever, and your name will endure. Your offspring will endure. And then he goes on in verse 23, and it says, And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come and bow down before me. Everybody on the new heavens and new earth will love God. All right? But then we get to verse 24. It says, Then they will go out and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. So evidently, right when God makes the new world, right, or creates this new heaven and new earth, recreates the present one, however he's going to do it, we go on a field trip out to the Valley of Hinnon, because that's the context if you go back earlier, and in the Valley of Hinnom, they're going to look at those who transgressed against the Lord, and they're going to see their corpses. They're going to see them all dead. And, and, and God says, for there, who, who's there? It's these who has transgressed the Lord, and it's their corpses. For their corpses, in their corpses, their worm will not die. The maggots will not die until they have consumed that corpse. And the fire will not be quenched until it has burned up that corpse. 
and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. And those of us that live, you know, those of us that receive eternal life and immortality, you know, those who are lost will be an abhorrence to us. Um, you know, I think it's in Daniel, and we'll, we'll look at this at some point in the future, but in Daniel, God says, and, and, and their contempt will be eternal. And, and the contempt is not going to be the contempt of the, of the corpse. It's going to be the contempt of those of us that look on them with shame, those who have turned their backs on the Lord and who have died as a result of, of their sin. So in this picture, God paints this wonderful, this wonderful, you know, I mean, it's a sad picture of those who have transgressed the Lord. Um, but the picture is, is one of people dying it, it, the picture in Isaiah is not one of God eternally tormenting immortal people. It's the picture of maggots eating dead people's bodies and fires burning those bodies until they're consumed and are no more. And Jesus is saying it's better to suffer loss in this life than to be counted amongst God's enemies who will be destroyed of life, uh, who will be deprived of life at the end of all time, and they will die. Now this brings us to the third passage of Scripture that traditionalists believe is, is just such a strong Scripture that it cannot be denied, cannot be denied that um, the punishment of hell is eternal conscious torment. That passage is Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Let me read it for us. It says, then the angel, then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, it also will drink, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angel, angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And then again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we have something similar. And Again, not talking about people so much, but it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So... When people read this passage and they take it literally, this is what they this is how they understand it. Well, the burning alive of worshipers and the beast creates the smoke that rises. And because the smoke rises forever and ever, well, that must mean that the source of the smoke is the people burning. So therefore, the people must be burning forever and ever. So therefore, the burning which causes torment goes on and the fire goes on forever and ever. And that's probably how we've all been taught that passage with a literal reading like that. And that literal reading of the fire and the torment then is, is put back on all the other passages in the scripture. Now, let me just say this again. I've said this already, but let me just say it again. You know, most traditionalists today who appeal to the literal 
torment forever and ever, and they appeal to this passage, don't actually believe that people are going to literally burn in fire. And some of them don't actually even believe that the torment of hell is physical pain, but rather isolation and and separation from God or emotional pain of being separated into total blackness. So it seems just a tad bit odd that we would base our doctrine of eternal conscious torment on the literalness of the torment in this passage, but yet we don't believe the fire is literal and we don't believe that the physical pain implied in that torment is literal either. So that ought to give us some pause to to stop and think. Now let me say this. I acknowledge that the picture here of of the smoke of their torment rising forever, I admit that that is a literal picture that John saw. He saw this fire and he saw the smoke of their torment rising forever. That was the vision that he saw. The the question we have to ask ourselves is, is what does this vision mean? I mean, is this vision meant to be taken literal as a picture of of what's literally happening, happening? Again, for centuries, people thought it was. It was a literal picture of what was happening to people in eternal conscious torment. Now, again, most people don't think that anymore, but they believe that the picture paints uh, this meaning of eternal conscious torment, but does it have to? I don't think so, because we find the smoke... We find the imagery of smoke rising forever and ever at other places in the Bible. For instance, we find it in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 9 through 10. We already read this this section of Scripture earlier, but this is where God's talking about the destruction of Edom and how he's going to destroy Esau's land. And this is what he says, its streams will be turned into pitch and its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch, and it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever and ever. From generation to generation, it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. Now, what God actually means in that passage is not that the smoke of Edom's burning is going to rise forever and ever. In fact, Edom is not burning anymore, and the smoke is not rising. And so every Bible student will tell you that the smoke rising forever and ever in that picture, in that passage of Scripture, is a picture that God is going to absolutely destroy Edom, and they will not come back from that destruction. And even so to this day, they have not. The ever-rising smoke, actually, if you think about it, makes a great symbolic picture of abject, absolute destruction. Now, we see the smoke rising first mentioned in Genesis chapter 19. Again, we talked about this or mentioned it already in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, it doesn't say that the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah is going to rise forever and ever. But in Genesis 19 verse 28, it says the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And and so we have this picture of destruction being seen in the smoke that's rising. So if you think about it, when God adds the idea of smoke rising forever and ever, he literally could be painting a metaphorical picture of the destruction being absolute and the destruction being forever and something that people are not going to come back from. Now we find one more place in the Bible, it's actually in this same book of Revelation, where God speaks of Uh, torment and fire rising forever and ever. And this is in chapter 18, where we see the destruction of the harlot, uh, who is called Babylon, and she's riding on a beast, and God talks about 
how he's going to destroy the harlot, again, a representative of the city of Babylon, and he's going to destroy. Let me read it. It says, in, beginning in chapter 18, verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. So they're standing back watching the city of Babylon. And again, all this is a, a picture that John is seeing, this vision, but it's all symbolic of different things. The harlot riding on the beast is, is the city of Babylon, and even the, even the name of the city, I believe, is symbolic of something else. But they see their torments, they see her torment, and they see the smoke of her burning, rising. And then, you know, we, there's some more things said about the city, and we get to chapter 19, verse 1 where it says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who has who, ha, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her." And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sit on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. So we have this picture of the smoke of the destruction of the harlot or the destruction of the city of Babylon rising forever and ever. And back in, in the beginning parts, beginning in verse 9 and 10, we see that smoke associated with torment. But what is you know really, really clear is that God's not talking about this city being tormented forever and ever or destroyed forever and ever. It's going to be destroyed because in verse 8, a verse prior to what any of this, it says, for this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. So, so here's this picture of Babylon is going to be burned up, but yet the smoke of her fire will rise forever and ever. And again, so, so the picture of rising smoke is not that it's going to rise forever and ever, or that that which is burning you know, needs to somehow continue to exist so that the fire will continue to exist so the smoke will continue to exist. No, the smoke is a clearly, in the Bible, a metaphorical picture of absolute and abject destruction of that which is being burned, that which is being destroyed. And, and so the conditionalists would simply point to, to Revelation 14 and say that, yes, that's the picture, but the meaning of that is that they will be destroyed completely forever, never to come back from that destruction. So those are the three main verses that traditionalists appeal to. But there are some other things, there are some other verses that uh, I would like to just comment on and look at from a conditionalist perspective. How would we understand them? So let's look at three or four others. One of them would be the, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And there are several passages of Scripture that talk about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, 13, 25, 30, Luke chapter 13, verse 28. Here's one example, Matthew 22, verse 13. And it's in a parable, and Jesus is giving this parable a story. And he says, Then the king said to the servants, 
this, this person who'd got into the wedding feast, bind him hand and foot and throw him out into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this passage is, is pointed to and said, okay, you know, there's going to be weeping of gnashing of teeth. But one thing I want to point out, point out is that none of these passages say that there will, there will be a never-ending weeping and gnashing of teeth. It does not say that. And the other thing I want to point out, with regard to the gnashing of teeth anyway, is that so often gnashing of teeth is referenced as people are in agony and pain as they're being uh, consciously tortured. But that's not how God uses the word gnashing or how the Bible uses gnashing of teeth uh, in, uh, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 54, it says that now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, uh, cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. And that's talking about when Stephen is, you know, confronting these these religious Jews with the gospel. And when it says that they are gnashing their teeth at him, and they're not in pain, they're gnashing their teeth at him in anger. So if conditionalism is true, as we contend it is, and that the unsaved will rise from the dead to face the judgment of God and be punitively executed, some will certainly weep in sorrow, and others will gnash their teeth in anger, either anger at God or, or anger at themselves for having chosen to to live their lives for themselves. And, and, and I, I believe this will go up until they take their last breath. And until they actually die, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And furthermore, when we compare weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew twenty-two thirteen, with a, a parable that Jesus told in Matthew thirteen thirty, and following where he, where he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, or at least gnashing of teeth, it's the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Satan goes in and sows tares amongst the wheat, and God says, leave them. And in verse 30, he says, allow both of them to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so later on, the disciples will ask him to explain that, and so he does. He explains the parable of the wheat and the tares, and this is what Jesus says beginning in verse 40. He says, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned up with fire, and the Greek word there is katakaio, which means to be consumed completely, to burn completely up. Just as the tares are burned completely up, he goes on to say, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so again, I, I think the weeping and gnashing of teeth there is, is the weeping of sorrow and the gnashing of teeth and anger that they are going to be destroyed, that they are going to die and not live, not have eternal life and immortality with this God who's loved them from the very beginning. Uh, it seems they're, they're cast into outer darkness. The outer darkness, let me, let me comment on that before I move on. The, the outer darkness seems to be a synonym for utter destruction. They're cast out into 
outer darkness, what is no more, you know, and again, if you think about it, complete destruction would be that outer darkness, you would be no more. Now, but again, uh, one more thing before I move on. I just said that, but one more thing in verse 43, right after, after God says he's going to do this with the lawless, the, those who have not come to Christ, in verse 43, he says, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, I mean, there's this comparison of destruction in those of us who are going to shine in the light of the kingdom. Outer darkness seems to be you know, where people are no more. and But you, we, we will shine like the sun. Now, another passage that uh, traditionalists often point to, to uh, reference eternal conscious torment, and you might even consider this a major one, would be La- uh, Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. It's often cited in the context of final judgment and what's going to happen to uh, the lost, that they're going to be tormented. And of course, you probably know the story, but in the story, there is this rich man and this poor man named Lazarus who had absolutely nothing. They both die, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, or to this place where Abraham is, and it's a place where, you know, it's really a nice place, and the rich man goes to a place of, of suffering, where he is suffering, and it talks about, I think it talks about flames in the passage. I, I don't have it open here in front of me, but I, I think it talks about flames. And so people say, well, see, there, there it is. People are cast into a place of torment or to a place of bliss. And the King James translates this story as they were cast into hell. But unfortunately, that's just not what the that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture actually says they are cast into Hades, which is the place of the dead. And this story, even if it is literal, has to do with the intermediate state. It doesn't have to do with final judgment. So it could be that in the intermediate state, there is this place of torment and there is this place of bliss. But it, but it doesn't even speak to what God is going to do in Gehenna, what God is going to do in the lake of fire. You know, maybe people will. Maybe people will suffer in this intermediate state between when they die and when the resurrection takes place in the final judgment. But this story does not speak to what happens in final judgment. However, I, I, I want to tell you something else I've learned that has greatly impacted my understanding of this story. I, I used to say it has to be a true story. It can't be anything but a true story until I discovered that this story that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man is very, very similar to a story that was very, very popular and very, very known in, in those days in Palestine when Jesus walked the earth, except that the story is exactly opposite or exactly the reverse of the popular story. Hugo Gressman cites a, a Greek parallel to this story in a first century Egyptian papyrus, and he says that there are at least seven versions of this story in Jewish literature. And uh, the most famous of these involves a poor student of the law and a rich publican named uh, Bar Marjan. And so in the, in the story that was very popular in Jesus' day, the publican or the scribe or the rich man, he is the guy who goes to the place of bliss. He's the guy who experiences the cool river while the other fella is is cast off, the poor guy is cast off to the place of suffering. 
Now, when Jesus tells the story, he tells it exactly opposite of what was told in that day. In other words, the way Jesus, he he flips the story on its ear. And so instead of the rich guy going to the place of bliss and the poor man going to the place of suffering, indica- uh, indicative that God loves the rich and the poor are just, you know, God doesn't like the, the poor, the poor are just going to be judged by God. Jesus flips the story on its ear and it makes the poor guy go to the place of bliss and he makes the rich guy go to the place of torment. Now, what that says to me is that Jesus could very easily not be trying to tell us about what happens after death, but rather he's just taking a fable from his day that people would use to to justify their riches. He, He just flips the story and he aims it at the Pharisees and the rich people. And he says, you think you're the ones that are right with God, but you're really not. And uh, so one thing to ask ourselves, if that is so, what's the context in which Jesus tells this story? And when you look at the context, all of this passage begins in Luke 15. And in Luke 15, 1, this is what it says. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus tells the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost boy. And then he tells this story here of the rich man and Lazarus. And and all of these stories, to me, are confronting, at least the way I understand them now, which makes much more sense to me, they, they are Jesus is confronting this hypocrisy and this idea that the Pharisees and the rich people had that they were in and, and the poor people were out. Jesus is flipping all that on his ear and saying, no, God cares about sinners. God cares about the poor. God cares about people that you consider marginalized and folks that God doesn't care about. God really does care about them. And, and so I, don't, I no longer believe that Luke 16 is even trying to tell us anything about the intermediate state. What happens after we die? I think Jesus is confronting the Pharisees with uh, their hypocrisy and their, uh, their misunderstanding of God's, God's acceptance of them. All right, the next passage would be everlasting destruction. We find this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. And listen, I'm going to read the, the whole five verses. It says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffered, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes in that day to be glorified uh, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, a lot of folks will look at that text and they'll say, well, look, look what it says right here. It says that that they will be they will be eternally destroyed away from the presence of the Lord. And so 
If they're going to be away from the presence of the Lord, they must be alive to be away from the presence of the Lord. So therefore, that necessitates that be, people be conscious and consequently tormented you know, for their sin. I'm going to simply dismiss this passage in this verse by saying this verse doesn't necessitate that someone be alive immortally to be cast away from the presence of the Lord forever. When, when, when God, when your loved ones die, they are, ca- they are away from your presence forever. I mean, they're gone until the resurrection. And I shouldn't say forever, because at the resurrection, we'll all see each other again, for sure. But, but for now, they are cast away from your presence. God is saying that they will be eternally destroyed forever from the presence of God. And I believe that comes about by their death, by their complete destruction. Now, one more, uh, one more passage. Uh, let's talk about the uh, lexical uses of the word destruction. Now, we talked about this last week in, when we talked about the positive case for conditionalism, and we said it's the use of the word destroy and kill that we find throughout the Word of God for the fate of the wicked or the fate of those who don't come by faith to God. They will be destroyed. And so the traditionalists will push back and and they'll use lexical defenses against that. And they'll say the word destruction and die doesn't always, it doesn't always mean to die or to kill. And uh, so the word for destruction that we find so often in the scriptures, apolumi, and they say, well, the word apolumi can mean uh, ruin or it can mean render useless. So apolumi doesn't have to mean to kill or to die. It can mean to ruin. So when we find that ver- when we find the word destruction so often, God is not saying that he's going to kill, but that he is going to ruin people in hell by eternally consciously tormenting them. He's going to render them useless by consciously tormenting them. And uh, in one of the one of the passages that's so often cited is when the wineskins receive the new wine, and Jesus talks about how the wineskins burst, the, the old wineskins with the new wine, as it, as it ferments and expands, burst those old wineskins that have already stretched, and so they are ruined. And they say, well, those wineskins, you know, they haven't died, have they? Those wineskins haven't been annihilated. They're still there. They've just been rendered ruined, and, uh, and you're not useful anymore. And so when God uses the word destruction, he doesn't mean to kill or to destroy. He means that God's going to ruin people. Now, the problem with this is they are committing what is known as the illegitimate totality transfer fallacy. And that's the idea that um, that every word, you can take every lexical meaning of a word and, and use it in every given situation. That's not really true. In fact, words have a variety of meaning. I think we've talked about this on Sunday mornings quite a bit from time to time, and you understand what I'm saying. Words can have a, a variance of meaning. For example, the, the Greek word uh, phileo, it can mean affection, it can mean friendship, it can mean love, it can mean kiss. Well, the context will decide what that word means. In other words, it, it's not going to mean kiss and friendship. This can't mean both of those things. Context is going to tell it. Now, the word can mean both those things, but in a given context, it can't mean both of those things. It means one or the other. 
And so here's the thing about apolumi that I want you to understand. In every single instance, the word apolumi, where, where the word is used and, and it's clearly referring to one person acting on another person or some agent acting on a person, the word apolumi always literally means to kill that person without exception. Here's a, here's a few representations of that. Matthew 2 most of these are from Matthew. Uh, Matthew 2.13, Herod wants to apolumi the baby Jesus. Well, he wants to kill Jesus. He doesn't want to ruin him or render him useless. He wants to kill him. Matthew 12.14, the Pharisees conspired together about how they might kill Jesus, apolumi Jesus. 21.41, the story of the wicked tenants. The vineyard owner kills, he apolumis the wicked tenants. doesn't render them useless. Matthew 27, 20, the elders and the chief priests urged the people to have Barabbas released and Jesus apolumied, killed. Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees plot to apolumi Jesus. Mark 9, 22, the parents of a boy with an unclean spirit tell Jesus that the spirit often throws the boy into the water and into fire, trying to apolumi him, trying to kill him. Here's my point. And hopefully you got it, but everywhere the word is used with with one person acting on another or an agency working on someone else, when it comes to people, it always means to kill. It It always means to bring them to death. Now, when we get to Matthew chapter 10, 28, listen to what the verse says. It says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather fear the one who can apolumi both the body and the soul in hell. And, and so the traditionalists want to say, well, that word apolumi there doesn't mean kill or, or, or die or destroy. It means to render it useless or to ruin it. But really, that is to apply... A, a, a meaning to the word apolumi that's never applied in any other context, you know, in the in the scripture, any other context in the scripture. And so, I just think that argument fails. I think the argument fails when when in Matthew ten twenty eight when when Jesus says, "Don't fear him who kills the body, but not the soul," because that's what people can do. They can kill our body in this life, but they but they cannot kill our life but rather fear the one who can destroy both our body, apolumi, both our body and our soul in the valley of Hinnon, in, in the lake of fire, in the second death. You know, fear, fear that one. Well, that brings us to the end of our study on conditionalism, our biblical study, or our, our study on the biblical exegesis for the position known as conditionalism, that the nature of hell is absolute destruction and death and not eternal conscious torment. But one thing I want to say to, to us as, as I'm finishing here is I, I, I would like to ask you just to, as you read Scripture in the days ahead, to, to read Scripture with conditionalism in the back of your mind and, and be looking for what does God say when he talks about the fate of the lost, and the fate of the saved. Because I think that if you'll do that, you'll, you'll begin to see things a little bit differently, maybe than you've seen in the past. And I want to end by just reading you some verses from John's Gospel. And just keep in mind God's, keep in mind this idea that the saved will live forever and the lost will die. Here we go, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his 
one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. 4.14, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5.24, verily, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. John 5, 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Do not, just 627, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has placed the seal of approval. 6.33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 6.40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 6.58, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your father ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. 668, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 8:24. therefore I said to, to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 851, I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. 10.28, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 12.25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gathered up and thrown into the fire, and they are burned. And we could go on and on and on. But thank you. I, I, I pray that you will consider this and study this. I'm not asking you to change your mind tonight as you listen or, or even after the sum of the last two nights. But I do hope that you will consider, that you will study for yourself to see what does the Bible teach. Uh, are men, are all men immortal? Are all men raised immortal to have bodies that never die, to be then tortured and tormented forever and ever as punishment for sin? Or does the Bible teach that all men are raised once more, and they'll stand before the judgment of God. And those who are in Christ, those who have put their faith in God, will be given immortality and will be placed on God's new heaven and are placed on God's new earth and his new heavens and new earth to live with him immortally, with him as our king. And the lost are cast into the lake of fire where they die the second death once and for all to be destroyed, never to come back. Which which of these does the Bible teach? 
Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.